Hello, I'm John Brink and I'm here in Prince George, the capital of Northern British Columbia. A beautiful day in Prince George and I have a very special guest today. His name is Gary Merkel, Merkel and uh, he is, uh, originates really from the Chelton Nation. Welcome to the show, Gary. Oh, hello, John. It's good to see you again. It's been a long time. Yes, yes. it has been. Now, for all those guests that are watching us, and, and, and there is so much happening in the forest industry in, in British Columbia, and in, in, in Canada for all that matters, but in particular in British Columbia, and, and uh, you are very, very much involved in that as well. But just for a little bit of background, tell me a little bit about you know, where you, uh, Teltan, where is it? It's in the uh, uh, Stikin River area. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you kind of developed from there and became what you are right now, which is a uh, uh, registered professional forester, in fact, and uh, have a doctor's degree of the uh, uh, University of Northern British Columbia. Yeah, a couple, couple doctorates, yeah, and a bunch of other stuff. It's all just words. Um, the, um, I, uh, I am Teltan. My grandmother and grandfather is George and Grace at Zertza. We're a very large family. My grandmother had uh, 20 kids, 17 of them lived to adults, 16 had families. Um, so I have many, like hundreds of cousins on my Teltan side, and then I have a large family on the Merkel side as well. That family originates from Germany, from the uh, Black Forest area. Um, amazing. Them. Yeah, they're amazing people. Yeah. All, awesome. all in the I'm, northern western portion of BC, then, uh, Gary? Yeah. Yes, all in the Stikine River area. The Teltan, um, Historically, we were a trading, a commercial trading culture. We controlled the trading corridor from the coast up into that whole uh, Yukon, North BC, north of the Skeena, that whole upper area there. Because um, the only really decent route was through the Stikine River Canyon. Right. And so um, now that the borders are there, we live on both sides of the border in Alaska and into Canada. And we regularly patrolled that boundary uh, a few times a year and kept people out. And that's who, who we were and kind of the culture I come from. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, my grandfather um, enfranchised. That means he gave up his Indian status because as an Indian in those days, you couldn't own land, you couldn't go to the bar, you couldn't vote, you couldn't you couldn't do anything, and uh, and he wanted his kids to go to school, and he wanted to be something, and he was always a prospector and a whole bunch of other things. He gave up his status and moved to Atlan and uh, started a big game outfitting business, and so we kind of grew up in that life a lot. I was actually born in Whitehorse, and I've lived all over the north. Uh, yeah, doing no. Yeah, sorry, Gary. Yeah, uh, yeah, so much information. And, uh, you know, so we have a lot of guests that are also watching from 
around the world, and I just want to help them a little bit, is that, uh, you know, that the area that you are speaking about in particular is northwestern British Columbia, but then north of that is the Yukon, right next to it is Alaska, and, uh, okay. you know, and there is a lot, a lot of history. Atland, again, and I'm so familiar with it because I used to live in the Yukon area for five years and uh, in fact uh, managed the sawmill there, Watson Lake Lumber. We talked about it a little bit. And, and the problem was that uh, that was a good sawmill uh, and beautiful timber, as you know, up and down the Alliard River in particular, amazing timber. But we couldn't get to the railroad because the railroad then was in Fort St. John. It was far too far away. And so we used to sell to the different mines, cashier, asbestos, all gone now. But, uh, and then Telegraph Creek and Athlon. I, I always remember Athlon, again, for our guest, uh, the, the, the way up to Athlon. Uh, uh, it was a beautiful, small community, but steep terrain. And, and the roads, I still remember, were narrow. And, and you looked over the edge and uh, was a long way down, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, the road to Telegraph has a few uh, areas where this 21%, 23% grade switchbacks, and, and it's a few thousand feet to the bottom. It's uh, it's an old lava plain, and so the river, yeah. the is a big river, so it cut channels that are pretty much straight down to the bottom, and so... If you go off, you're gonna go. You're gonna fall and bounce a long way. Yes. You, and you got, and it's gonna take you a long time to think about it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bouncing so, around the way down. <laughs> so, so then, what happened then, Gary? You had your family. You want your dad. Now, I still don't quite fully understand it for our guest as well to understand. So he then at that time they were not participating in all the normal things that people should participate in as being First Nation. And so then he, did he resend from his back? Yes. His, how, how did that work and why? Um, well, it was my, actually my grandfather. My, my dad comes from German roots. Uh, right. He's third generation Canadian. His, his family came over and were some of the homesteaders in the, in the ter in the prairies who they used to build up the agriculture industry there. Right. But my grandfather, um, I didn't realize you had people from around the world, so I'll explain these things just a little yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Canada, um, there is a category of people called Indians, and they're a legal uh, designation uh, under a piece of legislation called the Indian Act, and there's certain rules about how you're an Indian or not an Indian. Right. Um, and you are the, if you're an Indian, you're the responsibility of the federal government, and you live on an Indian reserve and a whole bunch of other things. Right. In, in the old days, you were not allowed to go off those reserves as an Indian. You couldn't own land. You weren't allowed in a bar. You weren't allowed to vote. Uh, uh, if you married, if an Indian woman married a non-Indian man, she would lose her Indian status. Uh, she would no longer be categorized legally as an Indian. But, but the funny thing is, if an Indian man married a non-Indian woman, that woman would get status. 
and be legally known as an Indian. So there was a lot. It's an old time. Yeah. We, but at that time, my grandfather wanted to be something, and he could not be one as a status Indian. So he did something you call enfranchise, yeah. which means he gave up his Indian status. In fact, you actually had to give up your status to go to war. And a lot of Indians gave up their status to go to war. Because there were a lot of Indians that fought. And I was yep. born in Holland during the Second yeah. World War. I was born in 1940, liberated by the Canadians, actually, in April the 12th, 1945. And a lot of the uh, Canadian army were, had a, a, a indigenous backgrounds or histories behind them. Yes. Yes, Indian is one small group of the indigenous population and it really is a like i said it's a legal term it means somebody who is legally an indian under the indian act that doesn't mean you're not indigenous right. indigenous and being part of a an indigenous community is a whole different thing and it's a whole this is just something that the government decided if 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 you don't marry out twice like if you don't marry non-status yeah your kids still can stay being Indians. Yeah. But is yeah. that the right term to use these days, though, in society? Well, it is for some things. Right. For, for example, um, the Indian Act defines Indians. They're one small category right. of the large indigenous population. In the law. And in the law. And right. there's rules about Indians and Indian reserves and yeah. they're all legislation right. and for those people in situation yes but in general no that's not what the indigenous population is every no. one of them like I am Teltan yeah I, I actually happen to be a status Indian but that means nothing in my life it's just right. It's one of those things that you have. Uh, I'm I'm Taliban first, as most other people are what they are first. Yeah. And then if you bump us together collectively, we're indigenous. We're from this place. Right. Yeah. So then, uh, Gary, uh, you know, then when you grew up in the uh, Taliban area, and and uh, you know, from and and with a dad that uh, uh, thought that it was to have an education would be very, very important. How did you, you got your initial education uh, in, in your region there, Stikine River, and, and then went to schooling, and how did that go further? How did I do that? Well, I'll tell you a story, John. You know, I guess I can say this in public now because I'm old enough. I never really legally finished high school. I don't think. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Can I tell you something quickly before you start? I failed sure. grade three once, and I grade, failed grade seven three times, and that's all <laughs> I have. <laughs> okay, your turn. <laughs> you know what? The really important things in life, you don't learn in education anyway. You're absolutely education right. It teaches you how to learn. It teaches you discipline around Absolutely. doing things to do. I that's agree. what it teaches. And, and you learn some interesting other things too. Yeah. But, but, um, but I uh, did get in, I just, I'll tell you what happened was I, I was traveling through Ottawa. I was going to South America and I just stopped and visited a friend and she offered me a job and we were building forest cover mats for the Yukon and Northwest Territories. 
What really interesting. Yeah. What are they? Forest cover maps. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Those are maps of the forest that draw lines around different kinds of trees. Okay. Things can be species or by different heights or different ages or okay. different. There's a number of different ways to classify them, and this map classifications of trees on land. Right. Right. That's what we did using photos, uh, stereo photos. You can see three dimensional, and you you just learn how to draw lines around the different things. Exactly. I built those, um, and then uh, the whole South America thing uh, kind of caved in a bit, but and, uh, and for a bunch of reasons, uh, not in part of this, but. Um, and, and a friend of mine, I used to hang out with him a lot. He was a trapper. He was a photo interpreter. His job was to look at the photos with the little thing and draw the lines. Right. And then he'd put a label on them and say what they were. And then, uh, and then we would build maps out of those. Right. Um, he was a trapper and he lived outside of Ottawa a ways. And I used to go stay with him a lot because, you know, I'm from the land and well, yeah. we, uh, and, uh, he said to me one time, he said, you know what? You're from the north. You should consider going to school because you would only have to go to school for two years and get a diploma and you could be an RMO, a resource management officer. He said there's five of them in the Yukon and every one of them has a huge territory and they're the boss of all the land stuff that happens in that area. Okay. Everything. Wow. I went, holy crap, that just sounded like the dream of dream jobs. And he says, and you being from the north, they'd probably pay for you to go there because they want northerners to come and do this. So I went and looked at it, and they did. They paid me. I went to Forest Technology School in uh, Kalsagar, B.C., uh, and then I did go back to the north, and I helped build ben, a number. When was that, Gary? Uh, the 77, oh, 79. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good go. The North helped build a lot of their um, systems uh, for forest management uh, and wrote them all and did a lot of really interesting stuff. But then I, I began to realize that I could only go so far as a technician or a technologist. Right. And so I decided to go get a degree, and I actually did go get a degree from uh, the University of Alberta. And then I went on uh, and did advanced degrees uh, at UBC. And then I got a couple of honorary degrees and went in. So that's kind of how it happened. It just, yeah. Just, so, so you got your RPF, Registered Professional Forester, degree from UBC? Uh, the Registered Professional Forester is not tied to an institution. It's like okay. a... Like a professional engineer or a medical doctor. Okay. Once you can, once you get that, you can use that if you become a member of the professional association and pass the professional exams and live by a certain standard. Right. If you don't, you don't pass the. It's a big policy exam. Right. And then you have to continuing education to keep up with your field and and act professionally. You could get kicked out. Like a lawyer, it's like a doctor, yeah. it's like any other. Yeah. yeah. So that's where that comes from. You can get your degree from quite a few places, but you have to have a certain level of training to apply to become an RPF. 
Right. Yeah, and I, I got my degree from University of Alberta. Yeah, and, and, and then you went from there to where? Back to British Columbia. Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed my time at the university, but Alberta, when, for somebody who comes from the mountain, Alberta is not the place to live. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to insult anybody from no, Alberta. No, no, with all due respect, when, right? <laughs> when you come from the mountains and you've got all the seasons and fishing and swimming and skiing and hiking and all that, and yeah. you, you're in downtown Edmonton and it's 50 below and you can't take your kids out. And no. There's nothing to do with the mall. And, no. No. Man, I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Had, yeah. The, the other and uh, you know that where we have some similarities is that uh, I uh, was very honored actually to re receive also a doctor's of laws from the University of Northern British Columbia in uh, mm -hmm. 2019, and uh, you know I was very uh, honored by that. You know, and I know how you feel about that, and you got several of them actually for recognition of uh, the things that you have done in the past and uh, I, I very much uh, uh, appreciate it and it's well earned. There is no question about that, you know, so. Yep. No, I definitely appreciate it. I appreciate the recognition. And, you know, it really doesn't make much difference in my day-to-day -day life. I, I am who I am, whether I have a doctor or not really doesn't Except for now, um, I am actually an adjunct professor, professor at UBC, and having a doctorate allows me to do that. Yeah, and yeah. and and yeah. and. But the interesting part, from my perspective, is that with somebody that failed grade three and failed grade seven three times to receive a doctorate, I said I earned it. I'm proud of it. You know, so <laughs> I just had to say that. So, Gary, uh, then kind of taking us forward from there, then, uh, you know, so then you started being active in the uh, industry more and more <coughs> all the time. So take me a little bit further forward from once you had your degree and you really became and started to become more active in the industry. Um. Well, I got my, I got my, um, you know, it's funny, John, because my first, like many of us, well, not you so much maybe, but for a lot of people like myself, we have multiple careers. Um, and uh, my first career, I started in university. I, I, it turned out I was really good at computers. And so I wrote a lot of, it, that was back in the days when you just, after you had to use cards you didn't have to do that anymore but it was almost you had to fill out files of data and count all the spaces and yeah you know it was a and, and for it was painful and and we were just starting microcomputers had just started to come on the market and 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 i i learned them i don't know why i was just very intuitive and i interactive software microcomputers. I wrote Windows before there was Windows. Yeah, it came kind of natural to you, right? Those things, yeah. And, yeah. Then, I, I, and then I started modeling, and I really loved uh, like timber supply modeling and economic modeling and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, analyst for the Faculty of Forestry at U, at U of A, 
and uh, UBC uh, offered me a job to come and be their senior analyst for timber. And I came over and and uh, did a lot of stuff in there. And then I thought, then one time this job came across my desk and it was for the provincial forester for Indian affairs. And I thought, you know, I I don't want to work for the government, I, and especially Indian affairs. But, right. but there was something that intrigued me about it. I don't know what it was. And I really... And, and, I, and I, I had a list of reasons why I wouldn't do it. And I said this to a good friend of mine that I was working with. I said, you know, I really like the idea of this job, but I, I don't know about this, you know, this organization. He says, well, what would, what would it take for you? What, what would they have to do for you to take this? And I started, I made a big list. I said, well, this and this and this and this. He says, well, why don't you write a letter to them? put all those things on that list and if they give it to you they give it to you and if they don't well you don't care anyways no so i said exactly. okay yeah so i did and they gave me the list everything except a credit card that you <laughs> in those days in those days you had to be a deputy minister to have a credit card so <laughs> but you came close I, then <laughs> once i started doing that my job was to work with people and just, um i actually did the first coal management agreement in British Columbia. Was that, uh, a, and built. Fed, was that a federal position or a BC? It was a federal position. Yeah, that's what but I but, but it was at the leading edge of policy and, right. uh, and, and seeing how the world was going to unfold. And, uh, and I was working with communities all over the province. And, and it was just fascinating. Like, I just got so absorbed in it that I couldn't go back to modeling and school right. and stuff. Just, and then ever since then, my whole life has been that kind of thing. When was yeah. that, Gary, when you got that position? Uh, I think it was, I don't know, around 85 or something like yeah. that. Or, I'm not Mid-80s, eh? so. yeah, yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, could be, yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, and then we lived in Vancouver for a very long time. I was working out of there, uh, you know, the, the beauty of it, and we had two little kids. Uh, my wife was a critical care nurse, and so it was a very busy life. Uh, and uh, I hated the rain. I hated the weather there. The, it was always gray and wet. And yeah. one time I was up in, in December, and it was beautiful, clear. You get this in Prince George. Yeah. Sunny when the snow is crunchy when you walk on it. And I went out beautiful. for a walk on the land. Yeah. I just loved it. And then I got, I flew home, sunny all the way. We started landing in Vancouver, four o'clock in the afternoon. Rain. It just kept getting darker. Yeah. When we yeah. landed, the was going sideways. I, I yeah. just, right there, as we were pulling up in that plane, I said, I'm not living here anymore. I went home, yeah. told my wife, that's it. Moving. Yeah. So then we built a list of what we wanted in our town. And because we both could work anywhere. And uh, we settled on Kimberly. And so yeah. that's where I've been. At. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Kimberly is, for our guest, is, it's in the Kootenays. Oh. Give me the approximate location. Um, it's actually about the same elevation as Vancouver. It's on the southern boundary of British Columbia, yeah. very close to the Canada-U.S. border. Right. Um, and it's in the, British Columbia is a bit like a square, but it's got this little point that sticks out on the bottom Correct. on the south edge by the border and we live in that little point close to the end of the point just yeah. above the border um, yeah so 
So, but our weather is not like Vancouver. Vancouver's quite warm because of the ocean influence and stuff. Correct. Our weather here, I think this winter we got down to minus 30, but we get full, a full four seasons here. We live in the mountains and And that makes the di- that makes the difference too, right? To have all seasons, you know. Makes- I want, we, on our list, four yeah. seasons, yeah. mountains, you can swim in, areas yeah. you can hike, Hill, a good airport, yeah, uh, a good. You know, we had quite a big list, and uh, this yeah. this was place. Yeah. So then it takes us further into, uh, you know, the forest industry and the whole forest culture in the industry uh, into the '90s and forward, uh, and it became an industry in a lot of ways in transition and you were yeah. very much part of that tell us very much about, tell us about that uh well i was certainly involved in a lot of that but i was involved in many other things at the same time um, the nature of our community um, the indigenous community is we um, we were excluded from society for a very long time, right. and and did not have the same opportunities available to us. The state felt like they had to look after us, and uh, and so everybody always thought that we were just kind of dumb and incapable of looking after ourselves and building our own society. And obviously right. that was fake, but you know when you get it in your mind, you sometimes you just believe what you think and right and we all know that was a mistake now i shouldn't say we all there's still the odd individual might who but we as a country know that yeah. was a huge mistake yeah um so so we're trying to fix that well we have been doing that for a while but what that means now is we now have to build governments that make sense for us and right. catch up the area of governing and build economies and build social support networks and build land management and land stewardship infrastructure and build education and all those things we're building and so in my world i have worked in almost all of those areas and building all of those parts as well as land land has always been my passion but even more so is helping communities know how to dream and really more importantly how to make those dreams happen right and so that's what my work is about is helping communities right vision and learn how to realize those visions. If you, if they can do that, they don't need people like me anymore. Right. Um, and so at the same time, of course, we were still heavily involved in forest policy, particularly with the relationship between the uh, indigenous community and the provincial government, because it was becoming very clear as the courts recognized that the indigenous population had certain rights to the land, the rights to hunt, the rights to fish, to gather for food, for social, for sustenance type purposes. And those rights are embedded in the core of our country, in our our common law, and they're recognized in our constitution, which means that government can't just make laws to indiscriminately start to regulate these rights except the purpose of public safety you can't hurt people when you exercise these for public health you can't compromise health 
and for bona fide conservation. In other words, if there's not enough left for anybody, then you can't take them. Right. But you, it's not the conservation where, you know, the charismatic megafauna, the, the pretty animals, it's not that kind of conservation. Right. Um, um, so, so we have limits on it, but beyond that, there is, and so, and that right, the government has the right to infringe on your ability to exercise that, but it has a number of legal things that it has to do before it does that. Right. It has to make sure that it consult with you properly, understands your issues, tries to accommodate those, and works with you quite a bit to tell their activity can either allow it to proceed or come up with some method of accommodation for the impacts. Well, this was in a world where we didn't even know each other. In right. fact, actually, most of our community detested the outside world because he would never listen to them. And most of the outside world thought we were a bunch of fools who couldn't look after ourselves. Right. And so, so this is where we started from. And it was clear to many of us that we need to start building really strong joint relationships, particularly as it relates to land. Right. Because... We both have a very strong interest in taking care of the land properly. In our communities, we're born into that. Exactly. That is our whole being exactly. in many cases. So how are you going to build these things when we have very few trained people? We don't know each other. We have really negative relationships at this point. We're not really involved. And so a lot of my early work was around building education systems, um, building relationships, building provincial strategies with multi-sector groups around bringing, uh, getting more um, Indigenous participation and throughout the entire industry, getting government more effective at working with, consulting with, and engaging Indigenous communities, all that stuff. A lot of my early work was around that. And, and, and probably the most interesting work was the Indigenous community has a certain land ethic a value system towards land and the way it translates into management actually looks quite different than our contemporary management system correct we are not against using land no you just have to use it right is right. our view yeah and we we don't even have a word for protect it, no it's you, you just got to use it right right and, but 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 that means from our worldview we do things quite different when we plan and use land yeah but we didn't systems and we didn't have people who were trained to know this and to build these systems so i spent a lot of my time building land planning approaches operations approaches management infrastructure all of that kind of stuff and working with other people who were doing the same and i'm still doing a lot of that kind of work of learning how to translate our land ethics into practical land governance and management systems so the other thing that happened is that some very strong and, uh, and changing laws were passed in terms of land and land-related issues that were critical in terms of redefining uh, you know, the First Nations in terms of the rights to land and how that would be managed. And, and there were yeah. se several of them that changed everything. And, and maybe talk about that a little bit so uh, 
Okay. Um, there was uh, some of the earliest cases were the Sparrow case, uh, Miccosoo Cree, uh, Delgamook. Uh, there's there's numerous ones, and I'll just speak to a couple of them. The Melgamut in particular stands in my mind as, as well, very... It was very important, um, but what was even more important before that was Sparrow. Yeah. Sparrow, as a fellow, was charged with fishing out of season with an illegally fit length net. Right. And said, I have the right to, the Aboriginal right to fish. It's part of my culture. I've never given it up. Um, and... Uh, and I don't have to follow regulation to do that. Right. I have to follow conservation practices, of course, and I can't threaten people or stuff. Right. They took them to court, and the court came back and said, Aboriginal rights do exist, yes, and they are like this, and yes, you have them, unless you have a treaty. Then you have treaty rights, right. not Aboriginal. Right. Um, and so that recognized that we have rights, but we also said we have title, too, which... Title is an exclusive right to use and occupy a certain area. It's not the same as like the simple title that we have or, you know, like a private landowner. It's a right of use, exclusive use and occupancy. Right. And what the MOOC did was they said, we have title over this area. The court ruled, uh, did not rule that they had or didn't have title because they didn't even know how to prove it at that point. Right. But what the court did say is Aboriginal title exists. These are the parameters of it and what it looks like, and this is how you prove it. So go away if you want to prove it and come back to us with your evidence. Right. And so Tsukoten did exactly that. They went away, they prepared evidence, and they proved where their title was. Right. Um, now, title... Um, if you have a right to generally use and occupy an area, well, you know, I can go hunt moose over here. If there's no moose here, I can go over here. Like I, and I can do that over a landscape. So I can move it around a lot. So there's a lot more flexibility for developers to work around that right. and do enhanced activities and stuff. Right. Title this in a certain area, and it's got a line around it. And think of it a bit like a city, but it's not. Right. But it's that area. If you're going to infringe on that right, you have to have a really strong reason and a really good case for doing it, and there definitely is some accommodation involved. In fact, what Joe Colton told us, some legislation like the Forest Act doesn't even apply in areas where there's Aboriginal title, right? where the had title. And so these cases all of a sudden said, holy crap, we have this huge legal thing now that we all have to figure out how to work with. And we could continue to try to do this from a purely legalistic point of view, but this isn't working. We need right. to start the close collaborative and co-governance land management and planning relationships. And that's where we're moving to now is that, that, that area. So did the United Nations uh, had, uh, and I may not know the exact termination of it, that we accepted as uh, part of that uh, uh, yes. ownership management? 
maybe yes. talk about that a little bit. I'll talk about the relationship between we have rights, these Aboriginal rights, and they're quite they're quite a burden on Crown Title. They are a heavy burden on Crown Title, and there, there's quite a bit of work required to satisfy the obligations to them. So for that reason, we we realize we it's much better to have collaborative relationships okay. and stop from the law to try to help us sort these out because the law never works for anybody and it's right. and if you're going to you, together it's better to do it from a place of good relationships and right. common world view and common cause type thing agree but what what UNDRIP did the united nations declaration of the rights of indigenous people it's a, it's an internationally developed un declaration that speaks about indigenous people have the right to be themselves and their own culture with their own governments and their own languages and their and they have certain rights to their territories and et cetera, et cetera. Let's just pretend they're like real nations. Now, of course, the one clause says, but they are still subject to the state. You can't just, you're not just an independent country in a country, you are still within a state. So Canadian uh, First Nations are still within the state of Canada. Um, that's the boundaries. Um, but, uh, but within that, a whole set of rights exist now as self-governing, uh, self-determining people with cultures and languages. That, and, and so what British Columbia did was they said, you know what, we agree with that. We agree with that principle completely. And they passed a piece of legislation called DRIPA, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, Correct. which said, we agree with, it's a very short piece of legislation. Yeah. It basically says, we completely agree with this. We as, a, as British Columbia want to fully embrace this and we are gonna work with the indigenous population to change every one of our laws and policies to conform to the principles of UNDRIP. But it changed everything. Well, now we are working through every law every policy systematically with a joint indigenous provincial group and figuring out how to implement them in all areas yes and that's what is happening now the other part that i thought was always very critical is that it went from consulting first nations to finding consent no longer is consulting sufficient but it requires consent that in combination with DRIPA and the acceptance of that as being, uh, you know, the, the underlying foundation in British Columbia to the laws relating to land in particular, including the forest, uh, uh, laid then the foundation for a changing environment that A, creates change, different forms of management, uh, and I'm, I'm uh, not, not as up-to-date as you are, obviously, uh, you know, but it became uh, the different bridging of the gap between the indigenous knowledge of the land and, and the contemporary knowledge and other issues relating to that. But, yes. But as that is a work in progress, Blueberry comes to mind, uh, as areas that come to the surface and some other things that uh, will change. But the other part about it, Gary, that I believe is very encouraging is that 
it also creates new opportunity for and the status quo that has been the status quo for so long now has to be changed in terms of access to the fiber, managing of the fiber, including interpretations of the old growth forest and, and preserving old growth and then it, it, it waves all the way through manufacturing and uh, in rights and, and likely, in my opinion, will change the industry, in particular the forest industry in British Columbia. I believe. Yeah. That. No, I, I, I do too. Um, in fact, um, we are going through three major shifts in British Columbia right now in the for, in the forest sector, in the land sector in general, the way we steward land. Right. The first shift is we are moving to co-governance, co collaboratively governing between the indigenous and the provincial government. And Correct. we are not yet we're just at the start of that we don't know how we're trying to figure it out but that is where we're going yeah the second one is is that we are trying to build much more inclusive planning and decision making processes at much more involved regional areas and informed decision making of the regional peoples not not in in a way that we're arguing about how many cows should you get and how many trees should i get but yeah. what's right for them kind yeah. of thinking yeah um so that that is another big shift but the one of the bigger also the third big shift is we are moving from a style of management where we manage for individual resources as a priority timber for example or yeah. oil and gas yeah subject constraints so right. you can take trees as long as you take care of a couple wildlife things and a couple biodiversity things. Right. You can take grass as long as you take care of a couple things. We're shifting from that style of management to looking at the land as a whole and right. maintaining the health of the ecosystems right. at a local and a landscape level. Exactly. So now we have to be very different in our planning and our approaches and everything. All three of those are big, big shifts. And they're all happening at the same time right now in this problem. And happening now. Now. As and we they're speak. not forestry. They're everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you start to manage for ecosystem health, the land doesn't care whether you logged it or whether you built a ski hill or whether you built a, no. a farm or, or a highway or whatever. It's, it's an opening and it impacts ecosystems. And so now we not only have to we have to think of all the sectors together and urbanization and all that and start to think ecosystem very different way of thinking and planning so the other thing that it involves and uh, and correct me if i am wrong is the concept of appurtenancy the concept of the social contract uh, how it affects communities that includes not only first nations but other communities in terms of how well uh, uh, are, are we good stewards of all those additional resources that are part of the land? And, and if that are, then how can we have that operate in such a way that it always considers that and maintains uh, you know, a, a healthy land base and uh, and that also ha shares the rewards of that land base 
with the communities. And, and what I've always felt strongly <coughs> about is that, talking in particular about forests now, but it applies right across the board, is that how can we do all of that being responsible stewards of this precious, precious resource in this amazing province of British Columbia, and, and at the same time have uh, other communities share in the wealth of that resource. That does not mean uh, not allowing larger companies to do whatever they do, but always must operate in a responsible manner that is consistent with uh, the, the three main areas that you're working on right now and is being developed as we speak. And that involves uh, further manufacturing and involves my area in particular is saying uh, we have to do more, not only primary manufacturing and, uh, and, and, and shipping out logs and all the other things. I'm not a fan of that. Uh, I, no. be I believe very strongly that uh, we should be preserving old growth uh, because uh, it has uh, more, from a value perspective, I believe, it is more attractive sitting there than cutting it into two by fours or whatever. And, and so we have to be very, very careful in terms of, uh, you know, how do we manage all of that going forward and taking to account all those underlying principles. Um, so I think I just have to preface the answer to this question is that there's a few of us who are thinking this through and building visions and pictures of ways of doing this, but we have not settled on anything yet because, because we need to understand this collectively and all be able to be a part of it. When you're making this big a change, you don't just have a few people try to push it on everybody. We have to engage the much larger community. We all have to understand and help us. That, that is a principle. Yeah. But there is some of us who have been thinking about this quite a bit and, uh, and building some ways to help others to think, at least as a starting point. Right. Our, our government's policy here has been for some time now is we do have to increase community control and first indigenous control of tenures and resources in this province. Somehow, uh, forest tenures and a few others, quite a few, we want much more local in-province control. We also want much more in-province processing and value-added type manufacturing of everything, especially the forest sector. I just did a little talk today. A couple of the things we learned when we did the uh, old growth review, and uh, John, I didn't speak about this, but for your audience, in British Columbia, we recently did a... Uh, a review of uh, how we manage our old forests. Uh, and we produced, a friend of mine and I were commissioned by, or appointed by the provincial cabinet to go out and talk to British Columbia about how do they want us to manage our old forests and our ancient ecosystems. And we produced a document, uh, the Old Growth Strategic Review. It contained 14 recommendations but, the cabinet has not to interrupt you, uh, 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 was Gordy involved in that? 
Al and I did the review together. Yeah, the two of you, right? Al Gordy and yourself, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, and so Al and I went and talked to the entire province. We talked to a few thousand people. We got yeah. thousands and thousands of submissions. From all different we, areas and segments. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone. And, uh, and, uh, and we, we looked at all of it, and we came up with what we realized that this is not just about old growth. It's no. actually about the way we look at land. Right. We, we, we are, our view was we have the wrong lens when we're managing. We're right. thinking individual resources and we should start thinking much more whole and looking after ecosystems. Correct. We, we heard that and we heard that right across the province from everywhere. Right. So, so part of the things we did learn in that though was, is that if we get more local control and more local value added processing, our jobs per meter have dropped by, they have gone down by 50% in the last little over a decade in this province. Correct. And the cut hasn't changed. Yeah. So that's all mechanization. That is all shifting to predominantly clear cut and quick processing and whipping it out and selling it off. That's Correct. what that is. Correct. And, and we know that by increasing the value doing much more gentle to the land practices that take care of all the other values, we can get up to five times that employment uh, by doing it right. I and agree. we also know in the value-added sector, uh, the value-added folks have done a couple preliminary studies. And what they tell us is that British Columbia is getting about one-third the jobs per cubic meter as other jurisdictions are getting in the value-added sector because of the policy limitations that we have. And so there is a group of us now looking very carefully at this. What industry do we want in the future? It needs a certain amount of primary, a certain amount of secondary, and a certain amount of the high value. What's the percentages of those? What's the supply chains we need? How do we keep more wood internal and move it properly? What policies do we need to make that happen? I have always been very vocal about this, uh, uh, Gary, and, uh, you know, so, and for the nearly 50 years of operating a value-added manufacturing facility, uh, I was the founding president of the BC Council Value-Added Wood Processors uh, that had nearly eight associations, 800 members, simply because of policy decisions that were made two-thirds of them are gone, you know, they are no longer there. And what I said, I believe you were uh, one of the persons that spoke uh, when uh, the then Premier John Oregon uh, made the announcement uh, with uh, Kath uh, the Minister of Forest Catherine Conroy on the intentions paper. And uh, did you not speak on that uh, when no, uh, but First Nations was a voice, Labour was a voice. I spoke on, on behalf of uh, the, the manufacturing sector. Don't ask me why they chose me, but they called me and uh, if I had an opinion, I offered the opinion. So I believed yep. then, and I still believe today, and I've been very, very vocal about it, I think the future of the forest industry in British Columbia is that the manufacturing sector, once... And, and it troubles me that so many, so much of the timber is controlled by half a dozen companies that uh, control 75% of the AEC 
and then in fact then control 100% of the AAC just by the fact they control 75% that, and, and that they are not prepared at this point for all reasons that they have to justify and uh, uh, is that they will not invest but once they will invest again which they will then I believe the sawmills will become smaller that uh, smaller in terms of sizes that the diameter of timber flowing in that, that they are cutting will become more smaller than the large larger trees and that uh, the amount of lumber being produced will go up substantially and the people employed in those sawmills will be substantially fewer. I believe that the future of the, the forest industry is innovative primary and combination with intensive secondary. And the way I, that's how I see the primary sector, the intensive secondary will be either uh, companies that are primary in combination with secondary or value added or strategic relationships between primaries and secondaries or just secondaries alone but there must be a reasonable expectation of access to fiber the other part that i believe that the lumber mills that will be producing in the future going forward that 50 percent of the volume that they manufacture will go up the value chain that is 25% of the lower manufactured lumber and 25% of the higher quality manufactured lumber that should be further manufactured here and then go into the marketplace. That is beneficial not only to the primaries but to all the communities and, and addresses the issues that you raise in terms of we have to do more with the fiber. We now if we look and there are stats that we have that are available that shows of all the major man lumber manufacturing countries in the world in terms of value-added manufacturing other than the basic lumber being manufactured Canada after China is the lowest yes and and, and so we could double if not triple the amount of jobs created in lumber manufacturing and value-added manufacturing and I believe that's exactly where I always have believed we must go and that includes First Nations and it includes those that want to be in the primary sector and it must involve communities and uh, you know and that's the future of the industry. I agree with you, John. Uh, there's one little wrinkle that I will add in here, and we heard this in spades and saw all the numbers and stats, is that forestry used to be uh, a controlling and one of the biggest in British Columbia, and it, it is no longer. It's like eighth in the list or something. Right. Fails it by far. But we're seeing a decline in tourism because people come to see the majestic landscape, the supernatural BC, and that landscape is disappearing. It's, right. it's defined. And, and uh, we don't count that. We have such a strong bias towards timber in this province, like Alberta does with oil and gas, that we treat all those other things like they don't matter. They're just constraints. They're just, you know, just things that get in the way. 
and we don't even count them. For some reason, a timber job is worth way more than any other job, and we don't have to worry about those. Well, right. I'm not saying that a timber job is not important. I, I agree with you. I think we can get a lot more employment by being a lot smarter right. and about the build our policy and, and being much more um, in, in-house doing. But at the same time, our overall economy is not, it's built on all of these. And if we take care of all of them, I our agree. overall economy is healthy. And that's a good thing for everybody. And the I land agree. is healthy. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, uh, Gary. The other thing I feel very strongly about is that uh, sitting in northern British Columbia, and I love the north uh, for all yeah. the reasons that you do, is that uh, and, uh, Prince George is only the middle of British Columbia. Yeah. Because, uh, is that, uh, you know, and with all due, to my, uh, with all due respect to my friends uh, on the coast, and, uh, you know, that m more recently... Uh, there was a, uh, I believe, a $270 million uh, fund established for expanding uh, BCIT, which I think is great institution, but I would like to see a center of excellence here in Prince George for Northern British Columbia that is like the UNBC has satellites all over the different areas in Northern BC, as CNC does, so that we not only for the forest industry, but can train the skill sets, develop the skill sets for uh, you know the young people here, but both for the indigenous uh, community, but also attract people from far and wide that may want to create jobs here, create skill sets because the industry, not only the forest industry, is changing in terms of robotics, technology, and all these other things. We need to invest in training people for the future. And, uh, you know, and, and I believe, uh, uh, I was quite involved in, in the, the, uh, the, uh, the CNC here, the College of uh, New Caledonia, and, uh, and, and the Trades and Technology Center has my name on it, actually. And, uh, and I was very involved in establishing UNBC. And, uh, mm -hmm. But the center of technology, I believe, uh, I, I think B, uh, BCIT is a great institution down the south, but I think we have now have to start investing in northern BC so that we can develop skill sets here. Yep. No, I'm with you. I, I see the difference. Well, I always saw what CNC did, but you can sure see the difference that UNBC has made in the north. It's night and day in terms of the communities and the people who are working there and the whole level of society has just become so much more, um, I don't know what the word is, just robust and, yeah. and vigorous and, and smart and all, all those things just by having that there. The community health nurses, uh, processing, business people, all kinds of people coming out of there now that we never used to have to go to Vancouver and nobody, not everybody wants to do that. No. And no. And, and a lot of people now, including First Nations and, and, and everybody else living in the North and that we can bring towards the North to have the opportunity to develop the skill sets, I believe is very important and very critical for us for the next step forward, you know. Yeah, now, no, it would be a lot my people, but we come from up there. I know that.
Yeah. So I believe that uh, the center of excellence in Prince George to develop the skill sets for all industries, not only the forest industry, for Northern British Columbia to have investments in that particular sector, I think are very, very important. And a couple of years ago, what I did is I committed a million dollars towards the uh, center of excellence to develop those skill sets. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I would like to see where First Nations is becoming very proactive. I'm not talking about money now, but proactive in saying that's what we need to do. Now, the other thing that I've done, uh, you know, the, uh, and you know a little bit about me, is that uh, I wrote a book. It took me 80 years to live it, 20 years to think about it, two years to write it. Now, I know you, you wrote a book, too. Let me tell you about mine, and we'll talk about yours as well. So what this one is all about, Al, uh, uh, Gary, is, is not so much about hurrah, hurrah, John, how successful he is. In fact, it isn't about that. It's more about how much falling down, trying over again, starting over again. And it's all about attitude, passion, work ethic, and staying the course, having that dream when I came off the Greyhound here with my $25.47 and saw the opportunities and then always looked at it in terms of how much more value can we add to this amazing resources that we have here and all the opportunities. I, I never took any handouts from the government. I got no timber or anything like that, but I still, even today, very much believe that further manufacturing or value-added manufacturing throughout all the different sectors, as we talked about, is where the future lies, not only for the population in general, but also for our First Nations. And uh, I will stay, remain very active in that. So that is this book that I did about that. I have to show you another book here. We're going to send you this one, and I'm going to sign that for you, uh, Gary. Thank you. And, and then I, I did and did another one. And then you may wonder, I told you about me and my academic career, uh, you know, that I, I failed grade three and then failed grade seven three times. <laughs> and then they said, well, we're going to have to find them. What are we going to do with this guy? Send him to the mentally challenged school or should we get him a job? Now, my parents were beautiful individuals and I love them dearly, is that they decided to send me to become a furniture maker. And that's what I did. Oh. And, and so, but then much later, by coincidence, I was in a bookstore and I, I for some reason, I opened a book. It said, Driven to Distraction. And I read it and, and I read it and I said, oh my God, that's me, ADHD. Ah. And, and so it took me quite a while before I could talk about it because I thought that meant a mental illness yeah. issue but that was then it took me five years before i talked to my doc about it and then uh, uh, who was a friend and uh, you know after i read the book and uh, i came into his office he said john uh, you know okay why are you here i said i, I think i've got adhd so <laughs> then i the more i talked about it i became more public about it when i gave my presentation uh, you know, I, when I received the honorary doctorates from UNBC, I talked about a number of things in terms of opportunities. 
and uh, but also about some of the challenges along the way uh, you know like uh, uh, PTSD as a result of being in a war zone for five years and things became very very difficult and very challenging and uh, you know and 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 other things as it related to ADHD. Now, I believe ADHD is a superpower. I could not have done what I did without it. But the other part about ADHD that I feel strongly about it when I wrote it, it is not only about ADHD, it is that there are lots of young people or people in general that have difficulty of being in a structured environment uh, of, of uh, learning because of trauma and other things that have happened where the, the normal thing does not work for them and it is for that purpose as well and it addresses the issues around training how it looks you know you know what i have a good friend in fact uh, she just is texting me not right now i got her writing um a thing for me um it's a it's a manual on how to build community economic enterprises I, i've built a few of these in my life large companies that own many other companies in communities um and uh she just found out something very similar is that she's on the autism spectrum yeah and she learned it and and i said oh god that just makes so much sense now yeah and it actually the real powerful, powerful strength for her once she has learned it and understands it. It's an incredibly powerful, powerful tool. And you're right. I think she is what she is because of it. Yeah, an amazing person. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, the, the, in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, micro-certification, uh, you know, in particular, is one where a lot of times people are not built to sit in a classroom for four years and rather than having a skill set developed over that period micro certification deals more narrower with the actual area of skill sets and where you then develop the other surrounding ones at a later time i think the yeah. book is an interesting one I, i'm going to send you a copy of that as well and sign it for you I'd tell, love that. Thank you. Tell me about your books there that you wrote. You know, um, I just wanted to mention, John, that uh, um, I ended up with a couple of these honorary degrees and people had kept asking me to do it. And I said, well, you know, to actually do it with them and do a real my PhD friends. I said, you know what? I don't have time. And if I want to know something, like if I want to know how to build government or if I want to know how to build and run a corporation or whatever, I just go build a project and I work with people who know and I get them to teach me. And that's been my life too. That's, that's, that is the best way to learn. In my exactly. Opinion. I agree with that. Yeah. I don't mind school. I hate tests. So yeah, yeah <laughs> life is. <laughs> Show me yeah. a copy of the book that you have there. Is that available okay. and on the, and it's called uh, i don't know it's called i don't know if a lot of people would like it it's called reclaiming um indigenous government well it will it will tell the underlying issues right that are important to a lot of people these days because it, <clears throat> we are all involved in that you know what it is is we 
our communities um, have had, in Canada in particular, but this is the case around the world, Indigenous governments had quite complex governing systems, uh, many of which, uh, in fact, democracy is modeled after Indigenous government models. Democracy never existed before, uh, and it, this current form didn't exist until uh, the settlers came and modeled democracy after the Six Nations Confederacy in Eastern Canada and the way they governed. Um, and, uh, and so we are now trying to build governments that make sense for us, but also fit in the world and work with other governments in the world in a, in a way that they harmonize. Exactly. Well, you know, that's a big task. Um, and, uh, and this book, and we're becoming, there's been a number of research studies uh, over the last few years that have studied uh, developing countries. And what they have found is that the number one determinant of success of a developing country, and this is the same of a developing corporation or anything, um, and that gets into a long-term mature uh, effective state, is its level of governance discipline. The way it sets up the governing structures, the way it follows its rules, the way it's dependable, the way it's reliable, all those things, it's the discipline. Um, and so we are learning this and we're learning how do you actually build things that do that. And so my part of this book, um, I wrote the closing chapter about, um, and a number of other friends, this is a field where we're all learning it's a bit like Harvard School, where we just keep all learning from each other. Right. In fact, there's a there's a Harvard School of Governance. It was built on the Harvard model. Right. Um, it's not at Harvard. It's uh, and so my chapter was about how do you build yourself to be able to do this job, and how do you work with your community to do it? Right. And and I didn't write all the technical references and all that. I just. Moore was trying to give guidance to individuals who are taking on this daunting task of how do you frame your mind properly so you can rise above and not be lost in the fray? Correct. How do you be visionary? How do you have the right mental framework with a lot of people who are angry and hurt right. and help them do that and, and help them build something that works for them? Right. That is a big, big task. And so... Yeah, that uh, that was a fun book. I, I didn't even plan on write, writing it. I, right. Is it available online or how is it available, Gary? I don't know. Okay, I, we'll, we'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. Can you show me the yeah. other document that you have there uh, for Al Gorley and yourself? Yeah, this one here is... Um, we were commissioned again by the BC Cabinet, uh, Al and I. They asked us to do a review of how British Columbia manages its old forests. And we produced this document uh, called A New Future for Old Forests, a strategic review of how British Columbia manages for old forests within its ancient ecosystems. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before, this uh, has 14 recommendations to fundamentally change the way we actually look at land and manage land. It's not confined to the forest sector because the impacts are felt well beyond that, although a significant right. amount is focused at the forest sector. 
And it really talks to us about how to transform the way we look after and steward our lands and the old ecosystems within that uh, right. is what it's right. And, uh, so it really is a transformative change. Uh, right. Al and I both came to the conclusion very quickly the way we were managing for old forests in the past is we'd save these little patches, tiny patches across the landscape and put a little, basically a little fence around them and say, oh, that's great. We got old growth. Well, that's not how the landscape works. No. And, and they don't function. They don't last. And, no. you know, something's going to come down and burn them or blow them down. Or, and, and landscapes need to be healthy at a large scale with right. connected ecosystems and you know, we can't teach old darn moose to stay in those patches. Out <laughs> no, it just no, they're just no. They won't listen to us. Yeah. Now, Al Gorley is wasn't he the chief forester of British Columbia for a period? I've known him <coughs> for many years. You know. No, Al was chief forester, but he did hold a few prominent positions. One was the chair of the uh, Forest Practices Board. Okay, and so he was the chair of the entity that did independent reviews and investigations of alleged of uh of uh alleged um i don't want they weren't compliance and enforcement it was more like larger scale public policy this policy is not doing what it's supposed to or government isn't, isn't implementing it properly or industry they did that type of thing it's kind of like um uh, almost like an independent audit type process. Okay. Um, and he did go up through the system. He was regional manager in Prince George time. Correct. He yeah. might have been the regional manager when you were there. Yeah, I'm sure he you was, was, yeah. was the CEO of Forest Renewal for some time. Yeah, I was involved in that as a director too, yeah. Yeah, you and I were working together for a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he's been a few other things, but one of the things he did just before this, he's retired now, eh? And one of the things just before this was he did a, he did a study on how we manage moose in this province. Right. He did a whole report similar to this, a m review of our moose management in, in British right. Columbia. And that one is like, highly prized by the people who care about moose. Yeah, highly. So, Gary, anything else that comes to mind? We uh, getting to the end of our program here that you want to say as you close, and hopefully at some point I get you back again, maybe even in person at some point. Yeah. Um, yes, I think I might want to talk. I, I'm going to tell you. Um, I'm going to talk to you a bit about. Uh, when I talked to um, today, we had uh, the last two days, we had uh, an engagement session with people from all across the uh, forest sector and beyond about how are we going to make these big shifts that I just spoke to you about right. in our land stewardship in the province. Uh, multiple sectors. We also have a parallel stream with the indigenous government. And how are we going to build the co-governance and how are we going to build this plan to actually do this? <clears throat> and what I had talked to them about was, first off, the fundamentals of success of land stewardship, fundamentals, 
are you have to have public support. The public has to believe that you're looking after the land right and you're taking care of their interests properly. A lot of people think our job is to manage land. Our job is to translate public expectations onto the land. That's right. our job. Right. The public, we collectively own this. We, and that's our job. And yes, right. there's a technical element to it, but there is this huge human element to it. Right. The second pillar of success is effective management. You have to translate that expectation into reality on the ground in a way that engages everybody and turns out the way it's supposed to turn out. Right. You need a good management system to do that. And the third pillar of success is you need a healthy land. You need healthy ecosystems. Without that, it's not sustainable in the long run. You can get away with it, you know, on trees, you can get away for a couple, three rotations, but eventually you will denude it to a point and you will wipe out enough other resources that you will lose social license and the right. land won't be able to produce what you need. Right. So you need those pillars to make this real. Right. Those pillars are, there's a huge human element in it and we all need to be part of building this together. Right. Our in British Columbia, possibly like many other sectors or many other things around the world, is quite polarized. We have these camps of people who have, my way is the right way and they don't listen to others no. well. And we have major public fights and debates about it all the time. It is time for us to use the two ears and the one mouth in the ratio that they were given to us right. as opposed to using one mouth and not using your ears at all. Right. We have to over that. We have to figure this out together. We have to do this together. And if you are going to be part of the problem, you could end up compromising us being successful because what you do is you force us all into being defensive and fighting. And next thing we're fighting about little stuff and we're not keeping the big picture and the big, how do we get there together idea. That is my message, uh, at least today, that's my message, was what I gave to the group uh, who are building the plans. Um, and, uh, and I know this is hard. We all, none of us know how to do this. Let's just be honest about that up front. But we are smart enough we can figure this out together if we work together. And only, only then, Gary, if we work together, right? And, uh, you know, so well said. I very much appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion with you and for you being part of my podcast. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, John. Great seeing you again. It's been a yeah. blast. Yeah, nice seeing you again. Take care.